land is me Rock, water, animal, tree They are my song My beings here where I belong This land owns me From generations past to Welcome to another episode of Lore of the Land, nature reparations through an Indigenous lens. My name is Sean Appo from the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. I'm Cubby Cubby and Birigubba, uh, and I would like to pay my respects to the elders of the land on which we're recording this podcast today, the Gadigal and the Wongal people. Uh, pay my respects to the elders past and present. Today we have Mr. Ben Bowen, CEO of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, who's joining us. So Ben, do you just want to start by telling us who you are, where you're from, and who's your mob? Yep, so Ben Bowen, we're uh, Radri Gandagara mob, so um, the Keys family from out that way is our matriarch side, and my pop is Sid Bowen from up near Hope Vale way, so um, yep, yeah, freshwater and saltwater mob, um, been living and have been raised down here in Wongal country, um, and now raising my kids down here as well. So... You and I have known each other for a long period of time. We've Too worked long. together on a range of different things, but at the moment you're the CEO of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what the ILF does? Yeah, the Indigenous Literacy Foundation is a non-for-profit that's working with um, publishing First Nation stories, uh, but doing it in a cultural sense. So traditionally we've had a, a very white industry around booksellers and um, publishing itself that we would have our content edited for a wide audience. The work we do is about having that clear black author to a black child sort of writing. Um, part of the work we do is putting out over 120,000 books a year into 400 communities, which are over 52% Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander creators in that sort of space. And we work also about um, supporting communities to write books in languages or bilingual so that they can start creating literacy journeys for their kids moving forward. And um, you also do a lot of work in translating some books that have been popular books in, you know, the mainstream Australian culture, put it that way. Um, How does that work come about and working with the people who are ultimately translating that language? Yeah, so we're lucky enough that we've got the publishing houses that support us heavily. So um, we've had books like uh, The Very Hungry Caterpillar or Where's the Green Sheep um, or The Very Cranky Bear that are very popular books. And we've been able to access the copyright to work with traditional owners in, in translating those books to their own home language. So. Part of our challenge um, and the reason we don't do Close the Gap for, this re- uh, for these projects is kids will speak two or three languages. They don't generally get to see the written language very much in the early years of school. So doing some of those translation works has been led by a community that they want those books in home languages so that schools can start bringing um, culture into the classroom. It's slow work. It's... Uh, we joke about that very hungry caterpillar taking over 16 months to translate and it was really one word which was lollipop because community didn't have a word for lollipop and conversations would go around you know would they call it sugar bag or that sort of stuff to to make it a cultural sense after a lot i think it was um pinjara came back with lully um which we probably could have got quite quickly if we pushed but 
part of the process of slowing those um, conversations down is is language um, has traditionally been uh, tied to a time period that if it was a traditional language, it was uh, prior to white um, contact. Allowing community to navigate this piece is bringing um, a system for them to actually engage new words, so to make a language living, so that kids can then find a way to use that in their everyday, um, which is really, really important for us because if kids can't find a way to use it for everything, then they'll drop it out when it's not convenient. So making a world where language can be um, used freely, uh, which is a UN goal around um, the decade of indigenous languages, that piece is really critical for us and it starts with some of these easy translation board books and works all the way up to university type um, science books that are coming out now. So it sounds like an interesting piece of work when you get to communities and you're working with people who can actually translate that, that knowledge. What's that kind of interface like? Like who does the translation piece? Yeah, it's different everywhere. Um, so currently we're in 426 different communities. So we actually don't pitch projects in. We only come in when we're invited or on a project they invite us in. So it's generally community will have all the skills that they want. They might have a linguist or a university attached. Sometimes they'll be purely a language center or a group of elders that are working on it. So it's different and we match it up um, on the case by case scenario, but it's it's always the same way. We, we try to write copyright and contracts to always put this back into community hands so they own the entire project and, and all the materials that get generated out of it and take it away from linguists and the universities that tend to try to lock that stuff down. So everything we do is about putting it back into community hands and having as many voices in that um, space. So sometimes with our translations, we may have one translator or we might have 15 translators that are working on a book which all get acknowledged at the same rate. Yeah, which means, which makes me think, like if you've got a group of people that are doing that translation piece, when you introduce new concepts like a lollipop, <laughs> it can be some interesting conversations. They're interesting conversations, but they're also conversations for us to understand cultural protocols of not actually sitting in those rooms. If we've got no voice in that argument or no dog in the fight, so to speak, we should be removed from that conversation so community can actually work freely. Um, so a lot of the time we'll work with community and when those conversations come up, you know, you, you know that silence that gets raised and we all just remove ourselves from the situation so that they can speak more freely. It's, look, we all go through that. There's always this concept that um, language should be evolving, who gets to own language or who gets to put a new word in. And a lot of the conversation we're hearing is um, this concept that uh, new words need to be tied enough to culture so that ancestors would understand what kids are going to be talking about in 20 years time. That piece needs to be led by community elders because they're the link between that old and the new. So it's a lot of that sort of stuff going on. There's a lot of the stuff that some of those elders may not be, um, or not might not have the literacy skills to be able to be reading and writing at the same speed as the group. So we use different technologies as well in that sort of space to make sure that we're getting the right buy-in by the right people. and if that means us not being in the space to have those conversations, it's about yeah. allowing that. It sounds like a really interesting process. You mentioned something there about universities and other people coming in from the outside. Like, how are you able to talk with traditional owners and community people in the, in the homelands about IP and making sure that that's, that's protected, that indigenous cultural intellectual property is protected? 
Yeah, the Indigenous Literacy Fund, we've, we've got a um, uh, legal team that works with us. We also have got heavy support from Terry Jenke and her legal um, firm as well. So we've done a lot of our contracts that basically mean that community own the entire project. We are just one piece of the puzzle. So us creating the book would technically mean that the copyright would retain with us and we'd have the ownership rights. We've flipped that model to ensure that the community have the ownership, which means say if the ILF disappeared or um, we did the wrong thing, the community could take that project and publish with anyone without any um, repercussions. So we have set up most of our process. It's been a big revision in the last 12 months to make sure it's right. We're still working on it. It's um, always tricky to write legally binding documents that are, speak to both to community, but then the legal system without making a duality in the contract, which is a really hard thing. So understanding copyright, that we can protect something, but then um, assigning copyright to someone else, which then means there's two types of copyright that exist, who has the priority on there. So we, we deal with that um, and there have there's always mistakes in there. There's The law's always evolving in that piece and, and the work that Terry Jenke's done in ICIP is world leading. So we're sort of in uncharted territory as well as we go. So it's acknowledging that mistakes will be made, but ensuring that community are always represented in the room, that if there was any legal um, process, that they would be part of that process. That's a core principle that we work with, and then we go from there. Um, so as I said earlier, you and I have known each other for a long time. We've travelled to lots of different places around the country. There was a time a few years ago where we did 34 different workshops <laughs> around the country, and... Uh, in those travels, we were able to talk to a lot of different people about what was going on in those communities. And when we talk with people about language and culture and passing down law and information and Indigenous science and Indigenous technologies, a lot of the really intricate information and nuance um, around some of that information is contained in language and there isn't a real accurate translation in English a lot of the times. So, you know, when you're talking to people who speak their own language, as you do, it's kind of hard to have a sort of translated conversation in a lot of times when we're talking about culture, something as, as complex as culture and cultural obligation, which in the terms for the Aboriginal um, Carbon Foundation, we look at it as cultural obligation, uh, obligations yep. to care for country. So given that it's so nuanced and so complex, what kind of role do you see in that sort of language reconfiguration or language um, translation piece um, is really important for um, organisations like us and also you to be able to facilitate that language and that cultural obligation practice? Yeah, look, language is really technical. We, we say this that um, we, we, we're coming to terms with layers of language that... Um, deep language or law language that we talk about, that's something that you have one word and it requires a full page to translate out. You know, that's relationships, it's how things relate to, you know, interspecies, uh, environment, space, all that sort of stuff is in, contained within that one word. That stuff is really for community to own and translate how they want. And the, the best model I've ever seen come out of that is um, a book called Song Spirals, um, which is from Yakala. And, and the women up there have written 
their their word for song lines is song spirals and and they um have the language in there and then they actually translate not word for word but they they paraphrase what they want to share and they openly say you know this is what you're allowed to know but we hold everything else back so that that's the sort of level of knowledge um but we're also seeing now we've got what we call the entry level which is the everyday language so if we're, we're saying we're, we're going to walk to the river in english in language we can either translate that word for word which is that real basic and we can say um ninda yananu galigo so really word for word translations which doesn't take in um context the syntax or the, the relationships we have the next layer was we would actually put that into the sentence where we'd actually put it into the language where we say water to we go or we travel that sentence structure also then has a priority of country first landmarks and then our relationship on country then once again we go deeper to that then we would actually have the language of who are we and our relationship and how we traveling there and the relationship to land that we both hold and that so this is this is the complicated thing about um language we talk about that white fellows really only want one word and you know they they point at a seagull and go what's that and we can either call it a bird or a seagull or we can call it a male seagull or we can name it on the country that it is the season and my relationship to it do we need to give them that or do we need to just tell them yeah it's a bird like leave us alone so this is the the big piece that we we really need to tackle that um community have the understanding of what they can share but what they also need to retain and then build on that so it really in terms of like the carbon foundations and stuff like that 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 care for country piece we can care for country without knowing the entire piece because we know that community can do that piece behind the scenes we just need to know where our muscle can help the process so that's the piece with language is understanding how much you're allowed to know versus where you can actually support the system and that's where i think most of us struggle a little bit because on country we want to learn we want to make sure we're doing the right thing but sometimes knowing doesn't mean you're not going to do the wrong thing it just means you get tripped up because it's so complicated and it's outside your ability to understand um and we see that a lot so i think that's where we need to look at language and and specifically around this science and and that deeper knowledge about saying how do we dive down deep enough to get a concept of what we don't know and frame that out but you know what we do know then we can lift that piece of knowledge up but allow the roots to stay with community yeah i think um <clears throat> you raise a really good point there with um having that delineation between what needs to be shared and all the extra information that people like to know just because they might like to know it because they're curious about it i think you know we see that a lot of times in some of the work we do around land and land management you know people have totem systems and they have knowledge systems and they have sacred sites and they have all this kind of stuff that their cultural obligation is to protect and preserve and you know they're continually being asked all these extra questions that people don't need to know which can make people feel really uncomfortable um so you know being that that sort of um uh breaking the ice i guess between those two systems can be difficult but it's a really important role to be able to play and and i think it's a reframing of a mindset and i know over the many 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 hours we're spending cars driving and planes flying and talking about this stuff it's 
we really see this model as um, people come into the communities from the outside and, and want knowledge to make themselves the experts so they are the go-to resource to go further. Whereas when community work with this stuff, we're never setting ourselves up to be the expert. We're setting ourselves up to be one cog within the bigger system. And it's reframing that sort of mindset that a lot of universities or science or scientists or academics, whatever you want to call them, will come in, scrape enough knowledge, and then suddenly they've got a PhD to become the expert, and then they're the one who is the knowledge holder. That model needs to be really challenged in this space so that we're constantly going back to understanding we don't need to know the entirety of it. We need to know how our role fits within on, and who do we go to to plug in properly um, and not be the expert that is standalone. That, that's a really dangerous model for our communities. That's a really important point, actually, because we see that quite a lot. Like you and I have had umpteen conversations about the deficit lens and, you know, we still see that playing out in a lot of different places at the moment. Um, you know, we've been doing some work around strengths-based uh, approaches where we can go to communities and help them recognise what their strengths are and be able to build on those, which is sort of flipping that deficit model on its head. And I think, like you said, it's really important to go into communities and, and have deference to those communities. Like, they are the local experts in their local context. So, again, I think language, if we can support the work on language and reconfiguration of language and reuse of language, particularly in some of the southern states where, you know, colonisation has had its longest time frame to be able to act yep. and disrupt a lot of that stuff. Um, I think it's really important to be able to do that. But, you know, how do you, like, what's some of the ways that you do that when you go into, into communities? How do you position the people within that community to be local experts? Because I think that would be really valuable for people to know. Yeah, it's, it's time and the depth of relationships. So, uh, as you've mentioned, we, we've travelled around country for so long now, like um, having this conversation with another black fella earlier this week, actually, that people see us as sitting here that we're sort of now in roles that they don't see all the work that we've done for the last couple of decades in, in building these relationships. So, sitting like we were up in Cape York not long ago in... Um, Yalangi country and then sitting down with a group of elders in a closed room with all the doors locked at 30 bloody degrees and, and everyone's sweating because they are the local knowledge holders and they don't want people having those ears. So the privilege of the work that we've done over decades to be able to be invited into those rooms is, is how we set that stuff up. And even out of those projects, the inevitable outcome is you know, the school teacher comes and wants to do a translation work and they want to do it in the school with the kids and they, you know, try to talk about the kids doing this and owning the project and straight away the conversation always goes back from our end going, well, where are the elders guiding this? Because country is a knowledge holder, community are the voices for that, which are the elders who should be teaching the kids. Why should a non-Indigenous teacher come into a space who's got a linguistic degree then teach language to the kids that they don't understand the connection of those words or the relationship. So we continually hold that space. We, we pull a lot of our projects. We do work with schools or, or other organisations, but when we do the contracts, we ensure all the copyright and the control sits with the community so that it's not retained within the school system or isolated out. It can be you know, really heavily scrutinised by the community. So th that, that's the biggest challenge. It is difficult. You know that... Um, the amount of times you get, I'm 
a, a visit we did not long ago to a community where you know we walk in and, and community knew we were coming for about three months and then get introduced and aunt and aunt goes oh this is arnie you know estel you know this, this is what these guys are here to do this and you know aunt just nods and walks out of the room and you know you know you're in in for a bit of a test that those things happen because you know we don't have credentials we need to spend time and do cultural protocols and it was we went out and did a smoking ceremony we spent the time traveling around speaking to people and and sitting in conversations that weren't about projects but were just about understanding the community that we were in to ensure that we were doing the right thing by all the protocols that then led to aunt coming into the room that afternoon and going right now we can talk so that's what we do. It's purely not having a work hat. It's about we are blackfellas 24-7 and ensuring that we're doing the right thing every time we step onto country, which everywhere is country, um, and ensuring that we're leading by example all the time and not taking the easy road. Yeah, that made, what you just said there, that example you just gave us, makes me think of um, free prior informed consent. So that's a really big issue. Um, not just in the carbon industry and land management, but sort of across all aspects of Indigenous life. That sounds like a really good process for making sure that everybody has had an opportunity to run their sort of spyglass over here to see what you're here to do and to make sure that you're above board. And, you know, we've talked a lot about um, mutual benefit and all that kind of stuff. And what hasn't happened a lot is mutual benefit hasn't really happened in a lot of communities so like you say that example earlier earlier about non-indigenous people come in do a lot of work in that community harvest a lot of information go away and come back with a sort of phd whereas the local community is not really recognized for the yeah. input for being the sort of source data for that work so um that's another area that i think and we're not talking specifically about indigenous languages here but we're talking about a sort of common language that gets shared between anyone that wants to go and work with communities so that they're not just ticking boxes. They have to make sure that the people actually understand the concepts that we're talking about for any particular project. Yeah, and, and look, that's the thing. It's about actually, as we said, putting your muscle where you can have impact without actually getting something out of it yourself. So a lot of times we'll walk into a community and, and they may have a book that was published 20 years ago that's no longer in circulation. and and it's funny that, you know, no one wants to talk to you about a new book, but then when you sit down and speak with someone, and then suddenly all these old books get popped up in front of you and you can, we sit down and have a look at it and it's basically, and it's not a trick or, or a go-to method, but you look at it and you can see who the publisher is and then we make a phone call because we know all the publishers and say, hey, you got this one, you're not using it anymore. Can you give us the template? And it might cost the ILF some money to get the templates back. But then the process, what we do there is that's not ours. We haven't bought it. We literally put it back into the hands of the community and say, right, if you want to go with another publisher, whatever, that, that's your project, we, you know, let us know how we help. So even doing basic things like that, that it, it is that prior informed consent. It shows the model of how we do things and, and translate a heavily contracted thing that people can actually see the reality of it rather than just the words on a piece of paper that, you know, we get someone to sign and we go, great, we've got your signature, we can go. Um, and look, it's the same as we, we've just come back from, as I said, Cape York and, you know, spent Monday, Tuesday translating interviews and pictures and all that and literally handing the entirety of those files back to community so they have copies of all the audio files, all of that, so that if they want to do this project somewhere else, that is theirs, that content. So 
that's what we do in every um, aspect of the work so that we ensure that community actually see that we live up to the promises that we make rather than you know break it at the first hurdle where oh we've been really busy sorry we will get that back to you at another time or we give them the file that is something that they can't access because it's been locked or you need a special software system to open it so which is the norm unfortunately that's another really important point. Um, Ricky Archer, who we've spoken to a few episodes ago, said, you know, the measure of success for him is not just being invited into communities, it's being invited back to communities. Yeah. So, you know, making sure that you do the work, uh, you build the, the relationships, um, and you do leave that community with something useful to them is a really important principle. Um, and I guess that leads me to the next point question which is around you know you mentioned earlier that reading rates are low they need to get higher like how have you seen the translation of language into the local homeland language has that facilitated any change in reading rates look it makes a big difference because um, all the research will tell you you know the best thing you can do for children's literacy is um, reading to your kids once again we have this systemic issue that you know some parents can't read or grandparents can't read or write very well in English. And so there's that little bit of a barrier that they don't want to be seen as uneducated in front of the young ones. So they just won't engage in that space. By putting a book into language, then they're the experts. The kids can't unlock it without that or even an educated teacher can't unlock it without the older. That piece, that flipping the model is critical for us because then it allows um, the simple interaction with the book that if we were teaching um, young kids how to read a book, first thing you do, you show them the cover, you show them, you know, the book opens this way and we read left to right, all that, th those basic things we take for granted. An elder will naturally do that because they know how everything works and then they'll see the language and, and navigate it. So that piece is really good for us. Um, it, it means that we get the buy-in from all the parents and the guardians around the kids then when the kids are looking in that space, the way, it's not just language, but it's the visuals that go for a book. So if we're reading books, um, we have a decoding process for young kids that, you know, you look at a word, you can't recognize the word, you look at the picture to see what the picture is telling you. So it gives you some clues for the words. Our kids, um, if the books aren't matched to their experience or their environment or their worldview, how are they going to use pictures to decode? So. The, the perfect example we use in Australia is um, everything we do around Christmas is a jolly white fellow in a suit and the snow and all these animals that we don't see. That book in a community when, you know, the coldest night is still 28 degrees, how do kids decode those pictures? It, it, that, that's the sort of stark contrast that we do. So even looking at um, drawing, hand drawing some pictures where we, we were talking with kids and when they're writing their story out and they're talking about their... Um, the aunt being cranky and, and, and you know, going to rouse some the kids because they did the wrong thing. And then the picture that a non-Indigenous artist drew just had sort of the, the V on the eyebrows. And the kids looked at it and didn't, and then we raise one eyebrow, you know, how high that eyebrow goes to the hairline is how much trouble you're in. And straight away the kids went, oh, no, oh, she's looking real cranky now. So just simple things like that, making that cultural context that books need to fit into that environment. So even allowing that sort of decoding process builds confidence and once again, it's away from the deficit. It allows kids to demonstrate what skills they do have, not measure what they don't have. So 
that's a huge win for us as well. And then finally, the, the last part of it is um, the real Western way of doing books is books are quiet time. So we teach kids, oh, you go get a book and you sit in the corner and you read it by yourself. Then our kids outside school are never by themselves. Then hence we don't read books because we're always with people. And you know, when we talk to corporates or donors around that, they go, oh, but that doesn't, you know, we, and I said, and we go, but there's so many etiquette rules around it. And I said, if you saw someone sitting in a cafe reading a book, you, you'd sort of accept that. If you saw someone sitting in a nightclub at a bar by themselves reading a book, you'd think they're an absolute psychopath and you wouldn't go near them or make eye contact because there's rules around this stuff. So kids are naturally going to pick up on those rules and embed them. So we, we look at doing models where um, bringing in cultural elements, you know, the Yabbies or um, Shorty Creek or any of those books where it's about kids going off and exploring, the kids can actually read them and then they can go and explore them together. So then suddenly it's not something you do by yourself, it's something you do as a group. And then suddenly kids are with a group and they can bring the book and they can explore. So it's changing that model and it's um, just simple risk adverse stuff that books 10 years ago in communities were a rarity. Um, as I said, we're pushing at 120,000 books a year. So some communities, are, they've got a good stock now. They're not worried about those stocks getting damaged or disappearing because we're going to top it up next year. What that means is they can start taking risks that, you know, at the local AFL or NRL training where the older siblings are uh, doing the training, instead of the younger ones just running a muck around the edge, we're, we're saying, take a box of books and leaving out there. And, and what we're starting to see now is those kids are picking up the milk crate and they're picking up books and sitting in the grandstand or around the edge and reading in groups. So it's not us directing them to them. It's just allowing books to not be this school thing it's something that embedding them in culture and when their culture is reflected they're interested and tic tac um uh, from tiwi tells this beautiful story that they have these teenage boys that couldn't get them to read never interested in it they're doing this intensive reading and then the young women from tiwi actually wrote a book and and so they put this into the reading list and the boys were reluctantly reading it and then the book actually has tiwi words in it and then suddenly they see a word and they're like oh that's our language and then suddenly the boys were all engaged in it and the base of the story comes out they're going, yeah, well, that's, you know, these girls, they, they're the ones that wrote it. And like, oh, they wrote a book and then they're off. So then suddenly they're like, oh, what happens? And then the series of books have come out that these boys are now reading. So you see them going, that's the trigger. It's just that hook. It's, it's having a book that relates to your world and lifts you up and, and you can explore and experience it. That's what we all miss. So giving kids that opportunity and, and even adults that opportunity to see themselves in a book is critical for us. Yeah, that old saying, you can't be what you, what, what you can't see yeah. really sort of comes to mind when you talk about that. And I guess we, we work with the projects who are doing the work on the ground to do the carbon farming and biodiversity and all the other stuff and cultural burning and all that kind of stuff. And again, it's a similar thing. You know, we've, we've had some conversations with some of the range groups around, you know, do you want to write a book around this? Like, are you having trouble um, trying to generate interest so that you've got this workforce, this able workforce who are interested and have probably come out in the country with their parents or their relatives or friends mm. and done some of this work. And I think there's probably going to be an ongoing role for some of that stuff. We might be writing some books together in the next little while, which could be interesting. And look, it's an interesting thing because it's a switch again, and, and this is the, 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 the challenge for us, like from being mob in here, that um, our history and our culture is oral. Like, we, yes, we carve into the ground, we paint, we do all that, we, we embed it, but 
books are not or never been a part of that. It's always been the book has been the thing that's taken it away from country. So embedding a process where community own that and, and can control it. And, and it's a really interesting thing of seeing how communities want to talk about, you know, if it was a, a song line or a song spiral, we, we have a, a protocol to open that. We do it, who gets to speak what parts, language, or is all embedded, and then we close it off. A book is outside that process. So we're having community now talk about going, the way they do an introduction is their cultural protocol to open this piece. And then when they finish it, they close it. So once again, they're creating this space that's really critical. So in looking at that deeper science book about how you burn off country and, and the rules and the obligations and, and the kingship that's all embedded there, who brings those voices up and how do we do it? And, and we're seeing really sophisticated conversations now about we will have maybe two or three authors who are writing the book and illustrating, but then there may be a whole bunch that sat there and helped translate behind the scenes and never wrote a word. But community, no, we're all authors. So they're creating this space. So that's the role that we do have is, is changing this traditionally white publishing space to go, no, we need to make it work for community, how they want to be included and acknowledged in the process. So it's a really tricky space, but ensuring that those books don't, are not the tool to take that knowledge away from people it's the tool to engage them back to countries how we need to do it yeah and i guess reading like you say reading books is not a traditional practice but you know aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people have been good at reading so many other things over such a long period of time that it's one of the things that has guaranteed our survival on this pretty harsh continent yeah and look we with this is the argument we use that there's you know, there's no shortage of these examples that we talk about community being oral, we talk about community having its sovereignty, we talk about community, its own law and, and separate, but every community has had this ability to bridge the gap to this Western system. So if we look at Barunga, we've got the Barunga Bark um, petition where they actually did a cultural system to bring a petition to government to challenge them and the law and the systems and the courts and that. You had your Carla do the same thing through their bark petition. So these things happen. We've, we've had those processes where community have taken uh, a visual oral history and found a way to translate that into a way to challenge systems. So this stuff's not new. And this is where we sit there going, community have always innovated. That's why we survived so long and we survived in so many different environments that um, we, we can see that stuff happening so well. How we do um, the challenge of allowing that creative space to come through is what the literacy is for us. So whether that's cultural knowledge, whether that's reading country, whether that's actually knowing who you are and, and where you stand in that whole picture, that's all the literacy that comes in there. So creating environments and systems to support them to bridge those gaps that they can see is what's gonna work for us. Yeah, and I guess, you know, like you spoke about earlier, like the evolution of our traditional cultural languages, which are introducing new concepts and new objects and a whole new range of things, as well as that practice of being able to use the written word to translate information really does demonstrate how innovative we've been and the evolution of Indigenous people um, over the last 250 years. And I had a conversation with... Um, Bruce Pascoe the other day, not the name drop, but I had a conversation with him on uh, Sunday 
And we were talking about this and, and uh, uh, I was at some NADOC celebrations um, through NADOC week and, you know, you have people dancing and doing all that kind of stuff and they show artifacts and all this kind of stuff. And I, I recognise the role for celebrating a lot of that stuff, but I think there's a lot of innovation and, and, and evolution in Indigenous cultures that's happened over the last 250 years that we haven't, that, that we don't celebrate so much. Um, and, you know, language revitalization and using language in books and, you know, even people producing short films that use language, like all of that use of technology and all the different um, sectors and spaces and businesses that we've gotten into. I think we need to be finding better ways to celebrate some of those stories and how we're um, inputting culture into those. And we talk a lot at the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation with other organisations around what does cultural economic development mean? Yeah. It's not going to be the Western model of, of capitalism, but it's going to be using elements of that. So if you wanted to project forward a couple of years, how do you see the work you do in um, supporting language and supporting learning? Um, how do you see that impacting in the communities where you're working? Look, I think it's... This is a challenging one for us because we're 100% community-led that we have big ideas and, and you and I have fallen into this trap in the past where you can see the progression of where something could go and, and you get excited about that and then you rush too quickly and community pull out of the process because it's not quite what they wanted or the milestones that you're envisaging don't quite match. So for us, we, we sort of look at this stuff going and, and we've had this conversation that we can have a really simple um, uh, say dreaming story for a lack of a better word that's a, a say a law story in there that's pitched or written towards a young reader or, or a child's picture book we also know that is an entry point for those kids to engage in their culture that traditionally we would be told and, and reflecting on my, my own growing up is you know nan would tell me a story and then she would tell me again and then she'd add a layer and, and take away a layer and focus on something and and you hear this story hundreds of times and each time it just would evolve and naturally become richer and richer but it never changed the context the story didn't change but the way that it was laid would and that reflected the the um i, I guess your ability to grow with the story so what we're looking at in this space is going we can write um, these early books or the books community want to write now to get their kids engaged back into the value of of language for their future and the stories that they need to know, but then it's actually a plug that that book then connects that kid back to the elders so that then they're doing that deeper knowledge. And the example we use, um, so for us, for Adri, we've got, and, and Gamilaroi have a uh, similar story around um, the moon. So this, you know, fat fella, cheeky lad, um, has five wives, he eats all the food up and drinks all the water, his, his wives punish him and chop him up and he climbs up a tree, dies, goes to sky country. And, and I'm trying to paraphrase a really long story into a snapshot <laughs> here. And, and it becomes a moon. And, and so at a new moon, we look at his behavior and he becomes a crescent and becomes a full. And by the time he gets to the full moon and he drinks up all the water and he eats all the food and then his wives chop him up and he's stuck in this cycle. That, that's the story. And yes, on an entry level, it's, you know, don't, don't be greedy and don't eat all the food and don't drink all the water and that. But then when we look at a deeper level, there's a whole bunch of astronomical data that's built into this that we can understand moon cycles. 
but then we can go deeper again into the relationship between the new moon and full moon and tidal. So if you look at our new moon is where you've got um, the moon and the sun on the same side. So the gravitational pull of both those bodies on our tide means it's a bigger one. So we don't ever fish on a new moon because the high low tide's so big it's muddy water. So communities even in Torres Strait don't go out on that because the tidal shifts are bigger, the water's murky, you can't see what's in there and you get less fish. And then as he drinks up all the water, there's less uh, change between high and low tide, better visuals, um, you can see in the water, you can see all night and all that sort of stuff. So then suddenly again, this child story is now talking about gravitational pulls and bodies and, and how that affects the whole planet and how we're all, so we sit there going, and that's country for us. So country is, yes, the land we stand on, it's the waterways that we can swim and travel on. It's also the air that wraps all of us and is in our lungs, but then goes into space and, and there's no end to that. It's this continuous. So having elders curate the stories and pitch them well in this space gives them the ability to pull this endless thread out that they can take community on this journey that we start talking about you know, space travels and, and how we understand the Milky Way and, and all that astronomy part, but then also land management. You know, how does fire practice go on moon cycles versus rain cycles versus all these seasons? They're all interconnected because we know that we don't treat um, information in isolation. They're always part of this chain, but we never get to explain the whole cycle or the whole chain because people only want their expert snippet. So that's where we sort of see the ILF sitting behind communities and just being playing a very, very small role about doing these books and then seeing where community want to take it. And, and it is growing that, yes, we do board books, we do, you know, books that may have 20 words in it. Right up to now, there's talks of, there's books in work that it's about 400 page in, in language that they do not want to be translated into English, that's so going to be purely that and they'll do an audio book with Anani reading it in language. And you're sitting there going, and that's an anthology which it contains all the families and the country and, and all those systems are in there because a single word, as we said, could be a whole paragraph in English. So it's a book that's locked, but it's only going to be unlocked by a community that actually have the cultural knowledge and the authority to get there. So that's where we're seeing the going that this is where community are just challenging the system. That They're not going, oh, this is our little slot where, where young authors read. You know, that's, that's how we do it. They're going... Yes, I'll write books here, but I'll also write books for the young adults and I'll write an anthology and, and this and I'll write a science paper and I'll do this. And we see that and a, and, a, and a really great example of that is Anita Heiss, that university professor, she writes, geez, about 30 books a year by, you know, on average. And, you know, one day she'll be writing a board book and then the next day she'll be doing, you know, a young adult fiction and then she'll be writing a biller book where you know it's a, a language english book that's a huge cultural story which is based on real events so we don't have to be sectioned into a genre that's where community are going so that's where we would love to take the ilf is just sitting there not being the forefront of that or the gatekeeper is just lifting that up and saying well how can we help that some of these projects are bigger than us um, and we'll happily put that to a bigger publisher to make sure they get global rights and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, that's where we're heading. But community <laughs> do knock you on the head pretty quickly if you get too ambitious on this sort of stuff and say, no, you know, we just need to write this book, you know. So that's where we do see this as a natural progression going towards, but um, it is really up to community to understand it. And 
I think the the great model that I, I always reflect on is your um, model that we were talking about and it came from, I think it came from your head when we spoke about this, was the iceberg. Nothing good came from my head, so I doubt that. <laughs> so the iceberg is, you know, the work that ILF's doing is we're, we're doing the part of the iceberg that's above the surface, that they're willing to share that information and engage the broader community in language and, and you know, understand diversity and the richness and the value of our culture. But then they're working constantly on what's below the surface. And that's what this book is, is to plug their kids to go deeper. That's where I think we we align with the communities at the moment is that that's what they see but how we go deeper is you know might not be for the ILF to be in that space and you know that that's for community to really direct us sounds easy should be able to knock that out in the next couple of years <laughs> yeah that, that's that's the 24 25 plan yeah <laughs> um lastly i want to ask you a, a sort of cheeky question so we've seen that a lot of places around the country have been renamed for their Indigenous names, so Gurry, our CEO's traditional country, um, Nianjin, Nam. When are we coming up with an Aboriginal name for Sydney? Like who's 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 talking about that and who's in control of that? Uh, so we are talking about this the other day. So Warren is, or Warren, if you want to trill your R and, and not get in trouble off the old fellas, um, is what Sydney was. Um, and that's what's been generally accepted down here. Sydney's very political, so there's always this argument. So, look, I, I think this is a really interesting piece that um, communities, especially Southern Mob, that have been so impacted by colonisation and, and, you know, uh, our sites or markers have been so heavily removed in a lot of places, we, we need more sophisticated conversations around how to do that. So we talk about Warren being around this pace and we will generally say that Sydney, but it doesn't encapsulate the, the diversity of Sydney. So Warren was about the yam that was down near the Botanic Gardens. So hence, you know, everyone thinks about Sydney as being the opera house and that. So that's why that's come up. So, but if we look at, um, just from Centennial Park going out towards the airports, that's sand dune country. So that's totally different country. And then you've got the East Coast out there around where you are from. And, and then you've got the La Perouse community out there that have got such strong language and, and they tie into the Ewan and that travel line between Sydney and basically Wollongong and, and down into the Shoal Bay. You know, that we need that sophisticated conversation about that. And, and then if you look at um, Parramatta River that you know there's 21 29 different clans sorry so once again you know what part do we do that so we've got um, around Glazeville and that you've got the mob that is around the snapper which is named after the snapper and no one thinks there's snapper in there anymore but you still do get it but you know we need to understand the difference between the mob that were on the rivers and the mobs that are actually further up and all that sort of stuff and and where do we draw the line on Sydney? Because Sydney's one of the biggest bloody places that you can mm. be driving from one part of Sydney to the other and it's three hours later and you still haven't left Sydney, you're still on the verge of it. So yeah, there's a lot of country that's involved in there. There's a lot of nations that are involved in that sort of conversation. And once again, we start getting into that whole language thing, you know, the Darrell Grant language and the Darrell language and, you know, are they nations or are they languages, you know? that's the conversations we need to know because mob have moved through and reclaimed a lot of that stuff and we do have dual naming but 
which language has it come from and, and is it a name of a place from a perspective, as I said, from a kinship connection or is it a place that's been named that everyone can use because it's a name of a place and separation to that. So that's what we really talk about, um, uh, the, the complexity of that language. And a good example of that is um, we spoke about this a couple of years ago. You've got Darling Harbour um, and the Iron Cove the two different bays within the Parramatta River system. And both of them at one stage were called Long Bay by Whitefellas. So in all the records where they've translated Long Bay to a um, Garama, I think it is, we don't know whether that's the Darling Harbour or the Lion Cove because white systems have confused the two. So th this is where we get really, really tricky on that or you know where we talk about uh, Cockatoo Island. It's named after cockatoos there when we sit there and go, we didn't have cockatoos there because all the grains are further away, there wouldn't have been cockatoos. So, or Goat Island's another great example. Do we name, like we've got Meemal for that or, you know, but why are we naming after goats? Like, mm. so there's really a lot of complexity around that. We need to understand um, how kinship would really work within that and have community ties to that. And, and it's a very political conversation that we're seeing that, um, Unfortunately, within the Sydney Basin, we do have a lot of arguments about who are traditional custodians and whether there are any traditional custodians left. And, and I know, um, uh, not, not to name people, but you know, the La Perouse community do have the records of their direct ancestors already been there for a long part and, and around Kamei, but also they were in the camps around Rose Bay and Double Bay and all that around colonisation as well. So we do have this um, direct line and, and language links to these places, but we've sort of got to park egos and all that part political body out and, and really engage in deep conversations to get there. Well, um, I feel like we've ended where we've started. That there's, there needs to be a lot more conversations and a lot more importance and understanding put on language and the sort of intersection between different indigenous languages, like you say, there's lots of different mobs that were in Sydney as there were all across the country. And then you add the extra complexity of the English language in there as well. So lots more conversations, lots more work to be done. But uh, Ben, thank you so much for your time today. And it's good to see you again. Thank you. This land is me This land is mine This land owns me This land is mine This land is me They will take it all